Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books and Sociology, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Sarah Patterson, and today I'm speaking with William Lopez about his book, Separated, Family and Community in the Aftermath of an Immigration Raid. Welcome to the show, Bill. Thanks so much for having me. Tell us a little bit about yourself. So right now I'm a clinical assistant professor at the University of Michigan School of Public Health, and I I teach a couple of courses, so one on immigration and policing and generally how state violence impacts communities of color. And then I teach other more traditional public health classes, health program planning and intervention development. How did this book come about for you? So the book's actually the product of the dissertation. So I spent a few years working on the dissertation. And when I finished, I decided um, the best way to tell the stories that folks had shared with me was, was in a book format. I think the book format, as opposed to academic articles, which are shorter, gave the stories that I was told a little more space to breathe and gave me the, the space to develop more historical and political context for each of them. And, you know, the stories are, are fairly about immigration enforcement are, are fairly traumatic. And I wanted to be able to treat those with more respect and empathy. So it just felt like I needed a few more pages and that this format was the best for that. Yeah. So I was really speaking of traumatic. I was really struck by the description of the main raid you detail in your book. As you mentioned in your book, the issues that you're tackling aren't just at the borders. They actually are happening down the street from where we are now. Can you start off by setting the stage and describing the events that took place in November of 2013? That really was the impetus of your book. To give you a little bit more background on how you know I ended up in the position to collect these stories. Like I, I mentioned, I was, I was working on the dissertation. And I was also volunteering at the same time with an organization I described in the book, uh, the Washtenaw Interfaith Coalition for Immigrant Rights. And through this role, volunteering and doing doing advocacy, I was aware of this you know, pretty big immigration rate, at least big by the standards of the time and the location, Washtenaw County, uh, in which it happened. And at the same time, in the School of Public Health, we were collaborating with other organizations to conduct the Encuesta Buenos Vecinos, which is the survey of Latino community in Washtenaw County. So I ended up in this position where I was able to both quantitatively and qualitatively consider the impact of an immigration home raid uh, because we had survey data that took place over five months and this raid happened right in the middle. Uh, So we kind of had this pre-post measure and through connections with the organization, I was able to speak with many of the folks involved in the raid. And to give a a description of this raid, so it happened, uh, as you said, on a Thursday in November of 2013. And what happened is that ICE had deported an individual before, and we'll call him uh, Santiago, as I do in the book. And Santiago was back, and ICE was going to deport him again. And they collaborated with the local police, uh, the SWAT team, uh, for this arrest, because they argued that he had drugs and guns with him. And the first time he was deported, he had weapons with him, had guns with him. So what happened is that throughout the day, ICE and the police were arresting everyone driving away from his automobile shop, what they what in Spanish is a taller, and I refer to it as a taller. And I say everyone, but I should be more specific. They were arresting everyone who was Latino and who was male. Um, so there's also this big feeling, as I think communities know, 
um, of racial profiling, right? So there's this particular race and gender identity that is read through a window that police or ICE will pull you over and therefore and thereafter question your immigration status. And this culminated at the end of the day in, in the raid in the apartment above his taller, in which his, his uh, wife and his sister, uh, another woman who was babysitting, and multiple children under the age of five, as well as multiple men uh, in the apartment and, and taller when it was raided. And the men were all taken, many of whom were deported, and the women and children left behind witnessed uh, this uh, and had to cope with it after. Thank you for sharing that. So I found it really powerful that you actually start off your book by situating yourself, or what ethnographers call reflexivity, at the start of the book instead of the back, like in an appendix. And so can you explain more about your process and your general methods for the book? It was an important decision um, mm -hmm. to situate myself at the beginning of the book for a few reasons, right? And one is when telling stories about communities who are marginalized, I think we must really reflect on how much we want to be the lens through which we interpret that, how much we want to put that forward, how much we kind of want to center ourselves when the goal is actually to center the experience of other folks, right? At the same time, there's this hard line drawn between me as an ethnographer or the academic as an ethnographer and the community with which we're working. And it is possible that people who are doing this work are from those same communities, right? So our, our higher education system is no longer just white, straight, male professors, right? There are queer folks, there are Latino folks, there are undocumented folks, there are African-American folks, there are Muslim folks. And often we're doing this work with our communities. And this becomes important, right? It's important to break down this dichotomy of the academic as the other um, and to break down this stigmatization of our membership in these communities as being bias instead of insight. But all that being said, while I certainly identify as a member of the Latino community in Washtenaw County, I've lived here a decade, have lived in the Midwest for even longer, and have lived in Latino communities, of course, for the majority of my life, there's very important differences that I wanted to get out right in the beginning of the book, right? And those are, I have exceptional privilege compared to many of the folks that I worked with. And among those privileges, I'm a man and I'm a citizen. Um, so on the one hand, I'm certainly a Latino working with my community, but on the other hand, I'm a man who is a father, who is a citizen and has citizen children and a white partner working with families who are often undocumented and speaking mostly uh, with mothers who are undocumented Latinas and Spanish speakers. So I thought it was important to situate my own privilege and what I was able to, um, you know, how my life does and doesn't relate to the folks who are the focus of the work. A major theme in your book is identification or IDs. Can you give us a little bit about the history of these issues post 9-11 and the Real ID Act? Um, and it's notable, you know, I've been to the airport a few times and for those who are also this year and for those who are also going to the airport this year, perhaps even for Thanksgiving or the winter holidays, you're starting to see all these signs that you need a Real ID Act. In a few years, a Real ID Act approved ID. You have to double check me. I think it's later in 2020 in order to fly, right? And so this Real ID Act valid ID is an ID with the star on it. So it kind of marks folks as those who are able to access to access these ideas and those those who can't. And we're not thinking a lot about it now, but it's in 2020 when people aren't able to get on planes, I'm suspecting there's going to be a huge debate in public, you know, discussion about what's going on. But the Real ID Act has a large history rooted mostly, or perhaps, yes, starting after the terrorist attacks of 9-11 in, in, in 2001. 
And because of that, there was this huge switch from immigration law as something used largely to enforce work and work regulations to something that suddenly became a matter of, of national security, right? And we see this in the switch of the INS, Immigration and Naturalization Services, to the Department of Homeland Security that happened after 9-11. So, you know, and, and homeland security requires a couple of things. One, it requires a homeland. And in order to have a homeland, there has to be this foreign place. And it requires security, right? And in order for there to be security, there has to be this danger. So in changing the name, it kind of exemplifies how we changed our national mindset to immigrants and immigration as a thing that brought uh, danger into our, into our country. So part of the change here was to restrict IDs and driver's licenses to only a certain group of folks. And that's folks who, among other qualifications, uh, have social security numbers. So what happens is that there's this large, you know, a big component of our, of our nationwide population who was driving and then suddenly overnight you know, was unable to renew their licenses and unable to drive. And this has clearly huge just logistical implications. I mean, folks... Um, throughout the country and in many undocumented communities, just live in places where you're not going to rely solely on public transportation for many reasons, right? In Michigan, often it's the weather. Um, it's often, for those of us who have children, tend to rely on our vehicles. But I think one of the one of the pieces I, I focus on in the book is that, you know, police violence depends on, and police and ICE violence depends on any number of reasons for law enforcement to instigate an interaction. And what happened was that by doing this, by only allowing certain folks to have IDs, suddenly police had this extensive reason to to interact with folks like, oh, we're checking on their IDs. We're seeing if they can drive. We're seeing if they can drive legally. Now, the part that's obvious and and I discuss for some time is that you can't see whether or not someone has a license through a window. Mm -hmm. So what often happens is is just racial profiling. Folks see Latinos, they see them, they pull them over, they ask for their IDs. And if they're undocumented, this whole cascade of implications happens after that. So you find in the stories that you share in your book that compliance doesn't always help. Um, You know, it's a bit of damned if you do, damned if you don't. So there's an example of of one gentleman who's being detained in the raid, like on the street that you were talking about. And the officer says it's more money than you could ever have in your life when he pulls out these tips he had from working, Um, you know, and then one person is accused of speaking English, quote unquote, too well. So can you tell us more about how that uh, how compliance plays into all of this? You know, I, I teach, like I mentioned, I teach this class on on uh, immigration enforcement. We focus a lot on immigration raids. And of course, part of this is certainly know your rights training, right? For example, you have the right to refuse folks uh, entering, or rather ICE agents. You have the right to refuse ICE agents from entering your house if they don't show you the warrant, right? So it requires consent in most cases. And we watch a video of a raid, right? And we, and we see some law enforcement officers knock on the door announce their presence, and, you know, not three seconds later, break the window, break the glass door, and enter the room. And the question I always pose is, you know, when in those three seconds would somebody be able to express their rights? Would somebody remind folks that I don't have, you don't have the right to do this? And that's not to say that this training is critically important. It absolutely is. We should always know our rights when we're pulled over or when somebody is raiding our homes. But what it does show is that it's hard to understand rights and compliance without an understanding of the, the incredible amount of violence directed at people, right? Folks don't leave the U.S. Uh, and even thinking about police, 
Folks don't just uh, raise their arms to be patted down because they're going to do what police ask just to be nice, right? It's the threat of violence that forces people to do these things. So when it comes to compliance, folks are often making this decision. What is the risk? What is at stake? If I do what I'm asked to do, and this is, this is what happened to the individuals in the book that you're describing, if I do what I'm asked to do, will police let me drive on? Will ICE let me drive on? Will I be there to be with my family the next day, right? And so they're weighing like, perhaps this isn't really his right to ask me to do this, but maybe if I do it, it will be okay. And that's much of what happened, what happened in this case. Folks were trying to decide, how do I make police and ICE kind of, and not necessarily look the other way, but focus on, or not, not enforce to the full extent of what they can by doing what they say, whether it's their right to ask me to do these things or not. Um, so milk or leche comes up a lot as a major theme in your research. So what is the significance of that in your work? One of the things I've learned in, in doing this work, right, is that there's, there's uh, you know, we have what we learn thematically or like the, mm-hmm. the content of our work. And there's, for researchers, what we learn uh, methodologically, right? So what are the things in doing this work that taught us how to be better researchers that we can bring to other folks to be better researchers. And one is certainly these, these ideas that we have as researchers, communities generally, you know, already have way before we had any of our uh, theoretical terms, um, communities have been discussing these ideas, right? So perhaps just using different words. So often we can gain incredible amounts of insight, learning and listening more than we ever could analyzing through a particular theoretical lens uh, but often they haven't happened in conjunction. And uh, when I was doing this work, I continually heard the word leche, right, uh, which means milk. And I'm not specifically asking about food, right? So I, I, and I don't even really, I'm in public health, but I don't really say, how did this affect your health? When you say health, people tend to think of a few things, anxiety, cardiovascular disease, you know, stuff typically associated with, with the body or the mind. So I don't say, tell me about your health. I just ask tell me the story of the raid and what happened. And folks continued to say leche. But when I looked at the transcripts of when they were saying it, they were saying it in so many different ways in different contexts. And I'll just give you a few examples. One of the cases in the book, a mother who was in the raided building had nursing age children. And she described the, the night of the raid as the last night her child ever nursed, the last night the, the child ever drank the, the leche that her body produced. You know, she said, my body didn't produce palatable leche after that. And then they referred to Santiago when he originally left the, the taller. He left to go pick up leche to pick up milk for his family, right? So he was going to bring them food. And just to give one more example, uh, one of the mothers I spoke with whose husband was detained, as happened with many other men, they dropped weight drastically in detention. And his wife said, well, it's because they fed him oatmeal with water, not like I do, which is feed him, give him, prepare him oatmeal with milk, right? With leche. Um, and as I thought about this, you know, what the community was telling me, and which is a, a standard idea uh, established in multiple disciplines, but is that this is a multi-level problem. So that this is affecting our build, the ability of our bodies to function. In the case of, of uh, a woman I'll call Fernanda, uh, to produce milk for her child, for her infant to drink, right? Um, but it's also leche, which we can buy if we're able to cross the street, and go to the store next door to buy it. So there were, you know, community was also saying, well, we can't move about our own community to feed our families. And then just to follow up with that last example, 
know, a mother, or in this case, a wife, saying I, I wasn't able to prepare the meal for my husband, certainly spoke both to the family dynamic, but also to these gendered roles, right? So she felt as though she wasn't able to do what she normally did as a wife and care for her husband because of the impact of immigration enforcement. Just to follow up on that real quickly, I think that's one of the really fascinating things about your book is that we often talk about these events like it's happening to one person, but it really spreads out into a network. And so that's what I really appreciated about your book. Yeah, well, thank you. And I think earlier you asked the question of um, why I started with uh, with the story of how my own involvement happened. And that was actually something that I, I forgot to mention. We know as uh, you know, our ethnographic work, uh, ethnographic methods teach us that we are going to be allowed into per- particular networks with less work than we're allowed into other networks, right? So our view of an experience is based on the people to whom we speak, which is based on the particular social networks we have or we're granted access to, etc. And in many communities, this falls along gender lines, right? Just because some communities have strong uh, gender norms. So a male ethnographer is not necessarily going to be invited to a space with, for example, nursing mothers uh, and vice versa. So a female ethnographer may not be invited to an all um, a space of all men. And so what ended up happening, which I, which I thought was notable in my position, didn't fall along gender lines so much as it fell along parental lines. So I was parenting children um, of the same age as most of the people with whom I was, I was having these conversations, which I think, you know, so instead of just hanging out with a particular folks of a particular age or a particular gender, a particular job, I hung around with other parents that generally were thinking of many of the same things that I was, right? Um, and so a lot of these were just basic, like, how do we get our kids to brush their teeth when they're doing? <laughs> But a, a lot of it was, and, and just to go back, so the, the way that I was able to view and see this world was fundamentally instructed by the other parents uh, with whom I was speaking, who, as you can imagine, spoke more about the, the impact on their children and on their significant others than they did uh, even on themselves. In your introduction and throughout the text, you reference the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, so what connections do you find between that movement and your the stories in your book? Yeah, that, that's a great question. I Sometimes folks will be like, well, well why did you write about uh, this movement when you're writing about immigration enforcement? So it's a question um, that I like to address. And again, since we're researchers, I kind of like to think about the methodology behind it and what this means for how flexible we need to be in our work. Uh, when, I, when I went into the work, I certainly was thinking about immigration enforcement. And part of that was, can I ride with and observe local police, right? So one of the things, and you referenced this earlier about this work, is this is in the Midwest, what we call the heartland of the U.S. So it's not, there's not ICE and there's not border patrol constantly driving around our streets, yet people are constantly detained and deported, right? So a lot of this is happening through the actions of local police, and I wanted to be able to observe that. But I was doing this work in in 20, so the raid happened in 13, and I was doing it in 2014 and 15. And if you remember, there were multiple significant killings of Black men by police in 2013, including Eric Garner and Tamir Rice. And so when I was in these police cars, what police wanted to talk about, or rather couldn't help but talk about, was often the Black Lives Matter movement. And they didn't use those words, but they just, I just, they found themselves telling me, talking to me about the role of social media and how people perceive police and often how hard it is to police and we wouldn't understand it, right? And the more I reflected on this, the more I saw they were telling me this as a Latino man, not as, they did not see me as 
a black man. Clearly, I'm not. I'm not black. They did not see me as a member of the same movement. They saw me as a Latino working on immigration, and they separated this right. So the immigration world and the police world, from my observations of police discussion, are often two different worlds. And so they kept telling me these things about police violence in black communities, but so many of the comparisons just. You know, you take out the race of the individuals, and there's certainly important contextual factors to the way these law enforcement violence happens in both communities. But you take out the race of the individuals, and you see so many similarities, right? This is state violence that happens in communities of color that is extremely coercive, extremely militarized, and requires this rhetoric of, of danger and this rhetoric of vilification of Latinos, of African Americans, of Muslims, of whatever the marginalized community may be. So as you mentioned, you're a public health researcher. So you end your book by discussing implications for advocates and allies, law enforcement, in addition to others. So what should we take away from your book? I think one of the most important uh, takeaways from this book is is for folks who are comparatively less well-read, less educated about police and about immigration enforcement, right? So part of the way this violence happens is by covering complicated histories of violence and racial subjugation in really simple stories. And those stories are often that immigrants are, are narcotraficantes, are, are, are drug traffickers, black men are dangerous, Muslims are, are terrorists, and the implications become we should arrest them, uh, we should use excessive force, and we should surveil them. Right? And unfortunately, I think large segments of our population don't critically think about any of those things. They, they just don't consider that perhaps this is the cover for the violence that's happening, right? So a large, largely what I want to do in the book is kind of uncover these, these truths, right? Like, oh, these are violent systems. These are historically violent systems. Uh, one of the things that can't be taken out of this is that the raid happened and collaboration with the police happened because uh, Santiago was, was accused of trafficking drugs. And in so many of the killings during the Black Lives Matter movement, they were justified by saying the person was on drugs or by saying he, and it was usually, it was mostly men during the time I was doing the work. So I'll say he, that the, the black men killed might be on drugs, not even that they had them, just that it was a possibility, right? So what I want to do is say like, no, this is historic violence, leveraging war on drugs rhetoric to create these villains when there's no evidence that this may be the case. Right? And you easily are forgetting the level of violence and trauma Sheerly because whoever's talking about this, usually a police or ICE spokesperson, right, is throwing out the word drugs and the word danger and the word homeland security, right? So a lot of this is like take a critical lens into this work. I think this, the you know, there's one of the other points I, I, I hope to make, um, and I'm certainly not the first person to make this, uh, but that dividing marginalized groups into subgroups is a really functional strategy by people in power to keep their power in place. So as long as Latinos have to fight deportation, and as long as the Black community is against uh, standing against police violence, and as long as the Muslim community is fighting against a ban or surveillance, and we're not seeing these as multiple different types of state violence against m marginalized communities, no matter what they are, using the same kind uh, of rhetoric and tactics, the more we're, we're, you know, we're duplicating our efforts. So part of, I think, how we advance this is starting to, um, or rather continuing, because it's, like I said, I'm not the first person to say this, but continuing to do this work collaboratively across our groups um, against um, state violence and surveillance um, that, that dehumanizes our communities. Um, I think the complicated part of that is while also being aware of really important historical differences and privileges between uh, 
uh, among our communities. Great. Thank you. So today I've been talking with William Lopez about his new book, Separated, Family and Community in the Aftermath of an Immigration Raid. So what are you working on now, Bill? Yeah, largely what folks don't tell you is that after you write a book, then you have to talk about the book. <laughs> so it's uh, what I'm working on is getting used to, or is, is moving from being isolated in a room and looking at my computer screen while talking, while typing, to being on a podcast and with people talking about the book. So a different skill set, right? But more toward to the academic work, uh, this work separated was looking at a home raid. And when I was doing this work, it was right before the election. And perhaps naively, I was thinking or hoping, I was reflecting back, right? Looking uh, backwards at immigration enforcement that perhaps we weren't likely to engage in anymore, of a level of violence that perhaps, depending on who was elected, we would step away from, right? Nothing ended up being farther from the truth. Uh, Trump was elected shortly after, and we returned to much more violent immigration enforcement. And specifically, we returned, returned to immigration worksite raids. So worksite raids, there's no official definition, but generally what we're looking at is when there's one company that's raided in which from 30 to two or 300 uh, people are arrested from that business or that cluster of businesses in a single day. Right? And we didn't see these from since 2008 when Postville, Iowa was raided and Republicans and Democrats said, this is inhumane, let's not do this tactic. So we know that Obama switched tactics. We still know that many folks were deported. But nonetheless, this tactic of, of storming a building and removing a whole section of the community, of a working community, didn't happen. And we see it again. We see it in in 2018, there were six sites that were raided like this. Uh, so my current work looks at these worksite raids and with, with my collaborator, Nicole Novak, who's at the University of Iowa, we're looking at the impacts of these raids throughout the community, right? And, and we see them often compared and described as natural disasters. Folks are removed. You don't know where anybody is. We need food pantries. Folks need to shower. Folks need diapers. Just this, this flurry of work to... Uh, find resources. So that's that's the current work. That's what I hope I'll spend the next couple of years on. Thank you for sharing that with us. And thanks again for being with us today, Bill. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. 